Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan here with Mark and unusually we are face to face. We're actually sitting across the table, aren't we Mark? In the same room. In the same room, so apologies for the quality of the podcast, if it's not up to our usual crappy standards, <laughs> worse than usual. We're here in Sydney, um, we both travelled to meet sort of, well not quite in the middle, um, for a conference here, the Unusual Pet Net Avian Veterinarians Conference here, 2023 conference, which is about to start, so we thought we'd record a bit of a podcast before the conference, and I think our next episode may be to do with the conference as well, a summary. So Mark, we don't have any real news this week, do we? Because we're not very well. Well, both of us, <laughs> well, both of us have been travelling, and so we um, we don't have a lot of, uh, we haven't had the chance to do the research, the extensive research that we would normally do before the podcast. And our research has um, not come up trumps this week as well, so we don't have too many articles, so we're looking for some articles. So send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com pop to our website as well vetgurus.com and also visit our store at the Etsy store which is going gangbusters Mark I saw we had three visitors last week so it's really well excellent Um, have a poke around there think about buying some merchandise and helping support the podcast that would be fantastic so and I think with that Mark um, since we have no news items we're going to jump into a a topic, a surgical topic this week in reptiles, and I was just looking through our past episodes, and we did cover sort of a general summary of this way back in episode 21, which was March the 7th, 2018, to in reptiles, and we covered in reptiles generally there, but this week we're going to cover the surgical approach to dystochic snakes, Mark, um, in particular well, I suppose the Australian snakes mainly because we see lots of them obviously here in Australia and what our thoughts are and our tips and our tri- tricks approaching them. And the bottom line is most of these, I'd say 99% of them, we end up having to do surgery, don't we, in, in, the, in the snakes? I agree with you that, um, that we, I definitely have had a number of times where clients have presented dystochic snakes and, um, and then been hopeful that they could um, change the temperature, provide a, uh, a suitable nesting site, just change the circumstances in the hope that the snake might pass the eggs naturally. Um, but generally speaking, once they get to the point of having difficulty passing the eggs, um, uh, they're often presented well after the due date. Um, there are often a degree of adhesions and um, atony of the uterus, uh, the, the uh, oviduct, um, and so you're right, 99% of them need to go to surgery. And I, I tend to push a little bit hard to go to surgery, because so many of them need to, the longer that things go on, the more distressed and compromised the snake is and the more likely it is that we'll have uh, have problems with the surgery. So um, uh, it is sometimes difficult because uh, people may not know the dates that um, 
that snakes were mated. Um, they may not have followed the entire um, uh, period of gravidity specifically. Um, and so sometimes people feel that, oh, we'll just give it a little bit longer because maybe they're, they're not quite due yet. Um, and, but generally speaking, once the snakes are, are uh, out of sorts, opening them up as quick as possible is yep. a good thing. The longer you leave it, the harder it gets surgery-wise. And I think we ge our general rule of thumb, isn't it, for reptiles, is that, that snakes, vast majority of them are surgical, these dystochic am animals. Lizards, um, sort of in between, some of them would get away with medical treatment, but some need surgery. And chelonians, our turtles, tortoises, um, most of them we get away with um, medical treatment. Um, would you say that's true? I'd say that's true. But we're concentrating on our snakes today, Mark, so let's jump into it. Um, and you mentioned about the difficulties of it, so I think part of what I wanted to do for this episode is give a not let, not exactly a recipe book but sort of our tips about the approach to them um, and I had an email from a from a, a remote veterinarian um, or who um, performed surgery on a dystochic snake recently and they did a fantastic job um, with limited experience so um, yeah I, I think there's several important key points that we can um, get across to our listeners that will help them if they have to deal with um, that snake with those eggs stuck inside the mark. So the first first bit is, and we'll probably skip over this very quickly, is the anaesthesia of them. Any sort of tips about that? We're not going to go into great detail about the anaesthesia of them. No, I think the, the general principles of anaesthesia for dystochic snakes are, are the same ones that apply to whenever we're going to anaesthetise a, a snake. Um, we do want to give them a, uh, a pre-med. We don't want them to be overly vascularly compromised, so multimodal uh, anaesthesia is appropriate because we can use smaller doses of each of our anaesthetic agents. Uh, but generally the anaesthetic protocol that you're most comfortable with uh, for your snakes is going to work well for uh, um, the surgery in, in dystochic snakes. Yep, and I think the hardest bit with them is that... The the waking them up bit mark it just seems to take a hell of a lot longer to to recover them than to induce them um with, with reptiles generally maybe it's my poor anesthetic <laughs> technique but um it, and i think a key factor that to that is um making sure we keep them warm um during that surgical period and um, be dealing with a reptile um if they if they cool off there then that recovery period that immediate post-operative recovery period is a lot more prolonged with them so you know try and ensure that you keep them warm and, and always remembering also that we're, we want to ventilate them during the surgery being a reptile um, whether it's mechanical with a, a nurse or an assistant helping or we're using our little ventilators um, more often these days um, so let's jump into the actual surgery itself mark and the first thing that we always like to stress to um, veterinarians who are not used to dealing with um, surgery in, in snakes is don't go midline, Mark. Good tip, Brendan. Good, good tip. <laughs> and why is that? <laughs> um, there's a couple of reasons. The first one is that, um, that on the inside, there's a very large blood vessel. And if you incise on the ventral midline, um, you could lacerate that, uh, that, um, the ventral abdominal, the ventral celiac vein, um, and end up with a, a dangerous hemorrhage and potentially life-threatening hemorrhage. Additionally, uh, incisions that are made 
anywhere on the scoots tend to scar worse and make it more difficult to get that little bit of aversion that we look for um, that uh, tends to give us a, a um, least complicated long-term wound. Um, so yeah, um, I think uh, aiming for a location, a longitudinal location, um, uh, you want to aim um, maybe two rows um, of the normal scales um, uh, just above the scoots. That way you tend to miss the ribs and miss most vital blood vessels and don't damage those scoots. Yep, so a paramedian incision, is that what you're saying, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I mean some people still, some reptile vets, um, very good reptile surgeons still go midline and they push that little ventral abdominal vein equivalent out of the way but yeah I'm, I'm with you in that I tend to I'm probably not that skilled and, and I go one or two um, scale lengths um, laterally um, to avoid, make sure I avoid that um, so making that incision and one of the one of the tips or, or, or tricks with um, these dystochic snakes is that when we get in there, the vast majority of these um, eggs, they're adhered, aren't they, to the oviducts and, and we can't, unfortunately, we can't just make one little incision there and milk everything into one. We can't use a toothpaste technique, That's can we? That's exactly mate? right. I generally, my experience is that you might be able to, you know, if there's a dozen eggs, you might be able to make an incision over the the second and third one and get the first four out yep. and then similarly for the other so you might end up with three small incisions um, to yes. get the so you get strategic with them yeah exactly. so plan it out and realize that they will be stuck to that overduct and that we um, we're not gonna it's not gonna be like a dog cesarean where we can milk everything out of one little incision um, think about yeah let's just do two or three incisions um, or, or more if we've got a really long snake and lots of eggs in there and we're going to try and ease out those eggs from that, those two or three incisions um, that overduck mark i'm always amazed at how fragile and thin and transparent it is and it's like tissue paper but the interesting thing so there's two things that arise in my mind immediately that you talk about how thin and fragile it is. The first one is that I think that's a little bit deceptive. Um, it, even though it has that appearance, um, it, it still uh, can contract down very well. There's a lot of smooth muscle in it and it um, once it's healthy, it's all very good. In fact, I find that when I'm closing the the, the wounds that I used to take a lot of time to try and oppose the cut edges of the oviduct um, but because it's stretched and fragile at the time you're doing the surgery you do often pull the suture even being very careful you pull it through don't you? It just tears yep yep and so I will often leave those wounds um, uh, as they are and when I've looked on the few cases where I've had to look inside the coelom subsequently, they do heal up absolutely completely. And I definitely have had snakes uh, that um, have completely normal um, reproductive events in the future after doing that surgery and not going to a lot of trouble to close the oviduct. Yep, so the tip there is they auto magically heal themselves and don't panic about 
closing that incision you made to remove those eggs um, because they do seem to auto-magically heal themselves, don't they, Mark? But that's only them? the oviduct. You've got to yes. close the, the body cavity, don't yeah. forget. Don't get confused. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, I mean, some of these you may be considering, depending on what's happening in the greater picture, um, of, of, of desexing that animal and removing the ovaries as well there. Um, what are we doing with that? Now, uh, let's talk about viability of yes. eggs there, Mark. Um, what percentage of them do you reckon are viable in these surgeries? Well, it's interesting because we have set a lot of the eggs that we've taken out um, during these um, caesarean-style uh, celiotomies. Um, and I would say, well, well less than 5% of them are viable. The 95% of them are past their, their, the appropriate time for them to take the next step outside the body, and there must be changes to the, the structure within the egg, the temperature within the egg, the development of the the uh, fetus if they've been mated, um, and generally speaking, those eggs are not viable. Yep, and not unsurprisingly, a similar result with uh, the surgeries I do, Mark. So, yes, I mean you've got nothing to lose to to incubate them or attempt to incubate and see if they are they are viable, um, and the clients often well almost invariably ask you that question. And I'll say it's a lot, they're probably not viable, but if you want to try and incubate them, you can. Uh, and um, following on from that, um, you know, surgery is often messier than, than, than what the textbooks tell us, Mark. Um, and we could end up with um, eggs that are putrid in there or ruptured there. So what do we do as far as um, trying to clean up the mess that we've made or that's in there? <laughs> well, it's the, it's the old surgical rule of uh, um, dilution is the solution to pollution. We, and the critical thing here, it's, a, it's well worth mentioning, we do want to flood uh, the abdomen, any contaminated part of the abdomen with, uh, with um, uh, uh, saline. Uh, but it's got to be the right temperature, Brendan. It's very quickly the case that you will compromise your patient, even if the saline is only marginally under the preferred body temperature. Uh, that will have, because it's taking the body heat as you wash through the sealum, um, it will compromise the patient very quickly. So making sure you've got uh, appropriately uh, the flush fluid at the appropriate temperature um, and flushing that sealum copiously, that's the way through that problem. Yep, flush, 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 plus or minus, depending on the size of the animal and that oviduct, um, either leaving the incision on the oviduct open or attempting closure. What about the closure of the body cavity that you said is important? Um, I've got, just before you get onto that, I've got one quick point I want to make, um, and that is that these dystochias will often occur for husbandry reasons, but a significant number of them will occur as a result of um, infectious processes in the oviduct. And uh, if you, uh, particularly have a, if you have an animal that is some, you know, a valuable breeding animal, for example, um, that might be a particular colour morph that's going to contribute to the next, you know, big thing for that breeder, definitely take a, a small biopsy of the oviduct wall, uh, both for uh, uh, 
um, uh, culture and sensitivity purposes and maybe some histopath, um, it's a, a unique opportunity to get that. It still heals, the oviduct will still heal, and you don't need a huge sample, only a centimetre by a centimetre and a half will be more than enough tissue. Um, and uh, and it's always good to have that in the bank yep. before you start closing Excellent up. Excellent point, Mark. And then we close up. Then we close up. <laughs> and the key thing there um, is that it depends a little bit on the size of the snake. I will use two layers um, I'll, if the, I have a decent sized snake, but there are some smaller snakes that I would uh, just like close in one layer. I use a pattern that allows me to just slightly avert the the skin so I get a little fold of pucker mark yeah pucker. applicated bit of scaled skin um, if you just oppose the edges of the scales then you tend to end up with them stretching and separating and having a more profound scar whereas you just do that little bit of eversion at the suture line and they tend to sit down lovely and flat and often the scar is very difficult to find subsequently if you if you do it moderately well. And the other issue is if we go the other way and we have an inverted suture pattern there, then we can have potential problems longer term when that animal is shed in mark and we have that sort of build up of, of sheds sort of internally there and it can become problematic with them there. Um, you mentioned two layers, so that first layer mark, if we're the more internal of the layers. What do, what do you grab in there? What do you close? The muscles, the the uh, muscle layer beneath the skin. Yep. Um, and it can be in smaller snakes, um, as the oviduct can be a bit fragile and tissue thin. The muscle layer itself um, can, uh, you know, it's been stretched because the eggs are underneath it. It's a bit uh, poorly perfused, and so. If I have any, um, the first few sutures in that muscle layer, if they're giving me any trouble, if they're sort of tearing and coming apart, um, then I'll just do the single layer with the, the, um, the skin. The skin uh, has great strength because of the scales in reptiles. Um, it'll hold the muscle layer together very well underneath, um, and I've had no trouble with uh, breakdown of single layer closures in reptiles. And speaking of those skin sutures, how long do we leave them in for? Um, longer than we do for mammals. Um, and so I might aim for something about four weeks to have a look um, and see how the healing's going. It'll sometimes be the case that at about that, you know, an, an animal that's uh, been metabolically compromised and then has the eggs removed will often shift straight into a shed cycle. And so more than once uh, I've had snakes come in that we've had excellent placement of the sutures and they come in and the sutures were removed at the, the intervening shed. Um, but yeah, I generally have a look at them at about four weeks. Yeah, four to six to eight weeks is sort of what I'd be considering removing them. So it's not, not dissimilar um, to what you you were doing there. Now, post-operatively, Mark, um, you mentioned about some of the potential causes there. Are we prophylactively placing these snakes on antibiotics? Generally, I don't post them prophylactically on antibiotics unless I have one of those, um, you know, the horrible 
uh, uh, degraded slugs in the oviduct that's contaminated and then I've got to do a big flush, we might put them on prophylactic antibiotics yep. then. But for routine cases where the eggs haven't contaminated outside the oviduct and there's not a huge amount of tissue damage, um, removing the eggs um, and the key thing though is that husbandry. As we keep harping on Brendan with our exotic pets, um, often the problem arises because of some minor shortcoming in the animal's husbandry. And so going through thoroughly the amount of exercise the animal does, making sure that the temperatures they're kept at are accurate are much more important components of the recovery than prophylactic antibiotics. Yep. So that's number one comment to the clients um, to try and prevent it in, in the occurring subsequently. Get your husbandry right. Um, is there anything else you mentioned to the client? Well, I do talk to them about their intent um, because I think a lot of uh, clients have accidental um, situations where the snakes become dystochic. They might have uh, two uh, diamond pythons and they don't realise that um, the presence of the two snakes together is enough to stimulate the female to produce eggs. They might, uh, on the basis that um, that they might want to reproduce and they might give them a uh, short cold period um, and that might uh, stimulate those hormones of reproduction. So if their intent is not to breed them, if they are genuinely pet snakes, then avoiding those circumstances can lessen the likelihood that the, the uh, female snake ovulates. And that gets back to the old question from the clients. And I'm amazed at how many clients don't want to know the sex <laughs> of their pet. Um, <laughs> that they bring in, um, and I stress that it is important to know if you have a snake in case it is a female and we run into these sorts of problems going on there, it is good to know one way or the other. And often that's, I don't know what it's like with you, Mark, but that's when the the client sends out the children or the husband or whatever. <laughs> some of them want to know and some don't want to know. So um, we do the probing um, and we let them know what gender it is um, and the other members of the family still still remain want. in the dark. Yes, I do right. have a little. I, I tend to say that you know we need to know for medical reasons. You yep. can. There's no. Um, you know. There's no shame for any snake uh, that that. Um, uh, is male being called female? They don't care, so you can keep calling them whatever you want. Yes. Um, but for medical reasons... They still reasons... won't come anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they'll just stay where they are. It's exactly right. Yes. Um, great point, Mark. Um, or was it my point? It was know. your point. Um, any final comments about doing surgery on these dystochic snakes? So we've covered the little bit about the the physiology the biology of them the fact that we need to do that paramedian incision on them um, the technique of probably needing to do multiple incisions over the overducts those very fragile looking overducts that will auto magically repair themselves even if you don't manage to um, suture them after you remove those eggs flushing at the appropriate temperature with, with a flush solution, depending on how contaminated it was. Taking a sample for biopsy and or culture if you need to. And the closure techniques and, and the prolonged 
suture removal time that we have compared with our, our mammals. The only thing that we haven't mentioned that I think is important is um, is analgesia. We always um, uh, make that a bit of a priority um, uh, post-operatively. The good thing I think about these snakes in my experience is that it's generally speaking only the the operative period, perioperative period that you need to be aggressive with your analgesia, some uh, opiates and when they're well hydrated, maybe some meloxicam, one of the non-steroidals. Um, generally speaking, um, these snakes recover very, very well and these uh, um, analgesic therapies are not required for a long time in my experience. But add those to what we've talked about before and that rounds out the discussion, Brendan. I think my takeaway with that um, particular topic is that they do quite well these surgeries, don't they? Despite the the poor surgeon Brendan, who's who's attacking that patient there. Um, the, um, so don't be afraid of of, of tackling this uh, as usual. Phone a friend or email a friend or email vetgurus at gmail dot com to um, get some advice um, if you're a veterinary professional and um, go for it. The snakes will appreciate it. And I think with that we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.